0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. 1
1: Corinthians chapter 11. And again, this is an interesting passage of scripture, and I've never taught on this. So I had to do a little bit of research myself to determine what in the world Paul is talking about. And so um, let's just read verses chapter 11. let's just read verses 1 through 16. let's just read it and then we'll talk about it okay? Is everybody there 1 Corinthians chapter 11? Um, actually, we'll start in verse 2, because last week we ended up with verse 1, which really should have gone with the previous chapter. So, here we go, First Corinthians chapter 11. Now, I commend you because you remember me and everything, and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, Amen. and the head of <laughs> Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man." For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. What in the world does this mean? (laughs) This is one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament because we are far removed from Corinth, and we have no idea what head coverings mean. So let's talk, first of all, about the cultural context of what's going on in that culture. We need to understand the cultural context. So first of all, let's talk about Judaism. In Judaism, women played no major part in the synagogue worship service. As a matter of fact, they were relegated to maybe sit on the outskirts, but they had no part whatsoever in the worship service at all in the Jewish synagogues. They had to wear veils on their head in worship and basically be a peripheral peripheral participant in Judaism, okay? Now, that's Judaism. In Corinth, you have both Jews and Gentiles. In the pagan temples, remember we talked about Corinth, all these pagan temples? The women played a major part in the worship, but not as the worshipers. They were the sexual vehicles for men to worship the gods through temple prostitution. So in the pagan temples, women were very active in the worship, but they were... The vehicle of worship, okay? They were temple prostitutes. So you had two extremes in that culture. You had the Jewish, they covered their heads, no part. And you had temple prostitutes that played a major part. So you could see how when Corinth started coming together under Christianity and the church started growing, what did you have in a Christian church? You had men and women worshiping together. The Jews are thinking, this is weird. The women aren't on the periphery. The Gentiles are thinking, this is weird. They're not temple prostitutes, but they're next to the men. Is this just a, kind of another version of temple prostitution, but maybe not as extreme? So there's a lot of, a lot of confusion. As, as people started looking in on the worship services, they looked in on Christian worship and thought, this is the weirdest thing I've ever seen. Men and women worshiping together. And so, so, so Paul has to address this cultural issue. And so really, chapters 11 through 14, we're starting to get into a new, a new series of thought here for Paul. Chapters 11 through 14 deal with public worship. How do we deal with public worship? When, we, when the church gathers together, how do we rightly order our worship services? So here's the main question for, for 1 Corinthians 11. Here's the principle. Regardless of the head coverings, here's the principle. How do we rightly interact as believers in Christian community, especially public worship? How do we interact? Because before he starts talking about public worship, what is he talking about? Marriage. Marriage is what's brought us together here today. You guys remember the (laughs) princess bride. He starts talking about marriage. That's the most intimate of all human relationships, and it's kind of the and even behind that, there's something even greater. Before Paul gets to marriage. And before Paul gets to head coverings, what he does, he does something very interesting. He talks about the intimacy and order of the Trinity in community. Now, what I want you to look at is look at verse 3. This is the key verse, and it makes some people mad, especially a lot of... um, Feminist women that have a problem with this. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a woman is, the oh, head of a wife is her husband. If we just stop there, it wouldn't be rooted in God. What does the last statement of verse 3 say? The head of Christ is God. Now, what in the world does it mean that the head of Christ is God? He's discussing headship here. And the word head means authority. And so his argument is very easy to follow, but it can be very confusing and very offensive. Paul's argument is very easy. He basically says this, Christ is in a position of spiritual authority over all men. Husbands are in a position of spiritual authority over their wives. But here's the one that we often missed. Christ voluntarily submits to the spiritual authority of the Father. Now, let's talk about the Trinity for a moment. Are all three persons of the Trinity equal? Yes. They all share the same Godhood, right? So the Father's not greater than the Son. Jesus isn't greater than the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit isn't less. All three persons of the Trinity are equal and eternal as God. They share the same essence as God, right? So, in their essence, they are all fully God. So, the Father is fully God, the Son is fully God, the Holy Spirit is fully God, they are co-equal, and they are co-eternal. But, and this is just another definition of the Trinity, they're distinctively three persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, three distinct persons, but yet they all share the same essence as God in equality and eternality. But I want you to think about, this is something we often do not think about, but we need to think deeply as Christians about this because it doesn't involve us. And we're so self-centered that we think everything involves us. I want you to think about the perfect love and intimacy that the Trinity has always and will always experience from eternity past and eternity future. Has the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit from eternity past lived in perfect unity, perfect fellowship, perfect love they've had this perfect love the father perfectly loves the son the son perfectly loves the father the holy spirit perfectly loves the father and the son so here's the picture of the trinity the trinity is a picture of ultimate self-giving complete joy self-sufficiency and perfect love where the trinity does not need anything to complete it there is no lack in the Trinity. Would God be sad if he had not created humans because he lacked something? No. So there's this intimacy within the Trinity. John 1, 18. No one has seen God, the only God, who's at the Father's side. He has made him known. It talks about Jesus being at the Father's side. I think the King James says in the Father's bosom. That word side that John uses there in John 1.18 is a very intimate expression of being in a perfect love relationship with the Father. So if you can picture the greatest, perfect, most absolutely holy love relationship that could ever exist, it's always been between the Father and the Son in eternity past and right now and into the future. There's this perfect relationship. And Jesus always experienced the love of the Father and wanted to to do the will of the Father. Listen to John 17, 4-5. Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus and the Father are perfectly at one. They have an intimate relationship They are equal, but what did Jesus do when he came to earth? He voluntarily, what did he voluntarily do? He voluntarily submits himself under the authority of the Father and goes to the cross in humility and service to the Father. So I want you to think deeply about this. Jesus is equal with the Father, but when he came to earth, he chose to submit to the will of the Father voluntarily. The Father didn't make Him do it. Jesus didn't do it unwillingly. He willingly submitted Himself to the will of the Father, even though He was equal. So, the head of Christ is who? The Father. Not in essence, but in function. Okay? So, while equal with the Father, Jesus chooses to submit to the Father out of love for the Father. So, what we see here... Our distinction in roles, very key word there, there's a distinction in roles, not in equality between Jesus and the Father. You see the difference there? A distinction in roles, not in being or in essence. Okay? So, the Father initiates, the Father sends, the Father um, ordains, Who dies on the cross? Does the Father die on the cross? No, Jesus dies on the cross voluntarily, submitting to the will of his Father. So Philippians 2, 5 through 8 tells us that. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, there we have it, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking The form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what does this tell us about Jesus? He was equal with God, but he voluntarily chose to submit to God in the role of a servant, although he was equal. So it was a voluntary choice by Jesus to submit to the leadership of the Father. And all throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, listen to what these passages in John tell us about Jesus. John 4.34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. What was Jesus' sustenance? To do God's work, to submit to God. John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will but the will of Him who sent me. There you have Jesus again, submitting to the will of the Father. John 6.38, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So, before we move into marriage, Paul starts out and says, let's think about the Trinity for a moment. Jesus and the Father are absolutely equal in essence, in being, but in roles, Jesus voluntarily submitted to The spiritual authority of the Father out of love for the Father. Does that make sense? Now, where do you think he's going with this? He's going to talk about wives. What's he going to say that wives need to do? Just like Jesus. Husbands and wives are equal just the way the Father and the Son are equal, but wives are to voluntarily submit to the spiritual authority of their husbands. Voluntarily, the way Jesus did. Um, Husbands can't make their wives do it. They have to do it voluntarily. So let's talk about the intimacy and order of marriage. <coughs> Excuse me. I have a
0: question. Yes. Where is the Holy Spirit in this? I mean, because of all being,
1: Does he Yeah, I think he submits too. I think, when you think about roles, they're all equal in being. They're all equal. They're co-equal. They're co-eternal. The Father sends Jesus. Jesus is the bodily form of God that dies. And rises again and goes back up into heaven. The Holy Spirit is sent by Jesus to indwell believers, and so in a sense, even that the Holy Spirit's submissive to Jesus, okay. because because G- yeah, because Jesus says, "I'm going to send another Helper," um, but even though G- the Holy Spirit's equal with Jesus, I think the Holy Spirit's job is to point back to Jesus. He points back to Jesus. That's his submission, yeah. And it's not like a submission that um, is forced upon them. They perfectly voluntarily do this among themselves, even though they're equal. And I'm, my point is, if the Trinity does this, how much more is it important for us to do this? If, if it's in the Godhead. Now, this is kind of deeply thinking, but Paul, Paul's rooting his argument in this because he's going to talk about husband and wife relationships. So let's talk about the intimacy and order of marriage. In God's creation... Male and female are created as equals in the image of God. Will we all agree with that? If not, you better be careful. (laughs) So males are not more superior than females. Females are not more superior than males. When God created man and woman, he created them equal. Okay? Now, let's think about this. When a husband and wife come together in marriage, they should experience a taste of the Trinitarian intimacy because we are created in the image of God. Now, why do I use the word taste? It's not the Trinity. It's because not the Trinity. yeah, because never in a million years are we going to be divine. We are never going to experience the perfect love that the Father has for the Son, the Son has for the Father, the Holy Spirit has for the Father and the Son. We're never going to experience that. But because we're created in the image of God, we should be able to have a taste of the intimacy of the Trinity. So that should bring a different viewpoint to your marriage that Even the sexual intimacy, the emotional intimacy, the oneness that God talks about all comes because of the intimacy and oneness of the Trinity, the self-giving love between the different members of the Trinity. So in a marriage, they're equal. The husbands and wives are equal. But what can you do in a marriage? It should be the ultimate relationship humanly where there's self-giving love, there's freedom, There's acceptance. There's intimacy above any human relationship that that has this deep commitment. And so in a marriage, it's just like the Trinity. There's a distinction of roles. Okay? God's design in creating Adam first and then Eve tells us what the roles are. The husband and wife are equal. The husband is to lovingly lead his wife, and the wife is to graciously and voluntarily submit to her husband's leadership the way Christ submitted to the leadership of his father. Now, here's the issue. This submission to authority should translate over into public worship where husbands and wives are gathered together for worship in Corinth. And so here's what happens. Well, let's just go back and and let's just read um, Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the, the church's body and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to everything and everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Okay, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on submission because I've, I've preached on this, I've talked on this, but Paul is rooting, Paul's taking you on an argument. Let's look at the Trinity first, then let's move to husband and wife relationships. Okay, let's bring it into the public sphere now of how wives relate to their husbands and husbands relate to their wives in public worship, especially in Corinth where there's confusion, where the Jewish women are way over there on the side with their heads covered and then the Gentiles had temple prostitutes where they basically abused the women. Christianity is going to be distinctly different from any of those two things. And so this is what Paul does next. The right conduct in worship. So here's the major question. What in the world is this business about head coverings and praying and prophesying? Okay, here's where I need you to hang with me. The marriage roles, I think, are binding because they're in the order of creation And they're God's plan. Head coverings, I think, are situational and cultural. And there's an underlying principle that adapts based upon your culture. You see the difference? Now, what happens if we switch that? You can see another pushback, can't you? What would be the pushback to that? Well, if head coverings is cultural and situational, isn't wives submitting to their husbands situational and cultural? Or, you know, which one is binding and which one's not? Which one's cultural and which one's not? And we'll talk about that in just a moment. Okay? So God has ordained that men and women have roles in the, way, in, in, in the marriage. And so um, the principle transfers over time and is binding on us today as far as male and female relationships in a marriage. But here's the question. Have you ever been in a church that practiced head coverings? Why don't we practice it today? How come women in our church don't come with head coverings? Here's the question. Is the issue of head coverings the main issue, or is the principle behind it the main thing? It's the principle behind it. I don't have time to go into all the archaeology and history, but you can go back and look at some finds that they found and some... um, Carvings. you can look at pottery, you can look at paintings. Back during that time, you can look at um, historical writings. But basically, it, it is evidence that in that culture, wearing a head covering meant in Corinth that you were married and submissive to your husband and you were not a temple prostitute. Okay? So a head covering... In that culture was an outward symbol of her marriage, much like a wedding ring would be for us today. It was just basically a visible way of saying, I'm married to this guy, I'm submitting to this guy, and I'm going to show you my ring. In that day, it was, I'm going to wear a covering on my head because I don't want to be equated with a temple prostitute. No woman that's married to a man wants to go into church and be equated with a temple prostitute. So she wore a head covering to show that. So here's the, here's the principle. Whatever, whatever culture a married woman is in, she should use the socially acceptable symbol that shows that she's forever connected to her husband. What's the socially acceptable symbol in our culture? It's the wedding ring. In other cultures, it may be, like in African cultures, it may be a ring in their nose. Whatever that cultural context is, Paul is saying you need to abide by that principle so that there's no confusion to everybody around that you're married. And especially in Corinth, you don't want to be equated with a temple prostitute. Okay? Now, here's the pushback that somebody would say. Well, someone could argue that since the issue of head coverings is based upon a changing culture... Could not the principle of male headship and the wife's submission also be cultural, not binding upon more progressive societies like America? That's what a lot of feminists would say. They'd say, well, you know, we know head coverings don't matter anymore. That was a cultural thing. So we kind of throw that out. Well, we also know that wives submitting to their husbands is kind of an old thing. We throw that out. What's the argument for that? Why would you say, when Paul commands wives to submit to their husbands... Is that a symbol or is that a command? It's a command. Is Paul's command for wives to submit their husbands and husbands to love their wives a real command or is it a symbol? So these commands are not... um, when When Paul talks about wives submitting to husbands, he's not talking about physical things like clothing or rings. He's talking about the reality of how things are based upon God's creation and based upon the scripture. So... There's a bind, I believe there's a binding ordinance in creation that God ordains that males be the spiritual heads of their families and wives graciously submit, and that doesn't change. But the cultural principle of head coverings may change depending on your culture, but it's related to that timeless principle of, of male headship and submission. Does that, does that make sense? Okay. So, There was another issue also going on in Corinth. The Corinthians women would wear their hair long and loose flowing on their back, which for a Corinthian woman, it wasn't a big deal. But for a Jewish woman who was in Corinth, it was a symbol of an adulterous woman. If you had long flowing hair down your back and you didn't put it up in a bun, you walked through Corinth, a Jewish woman would think, You're either a temple prostitute or you're an adulteress. Now, the Corinthians women that didn't have a Jewish background, they're just walking around with their hair long, thinking, I'm styling. You know, I spent all day on my hair to look like this. I'm not going to put it up in a bun. They don't know anything. So to them, it's no big deal. It's just hair. Like meat sacrificed to idols. Is the meat the issue or is it the association with it? Is hair the issue? No, it's the association with the hair and what the culture believes about the hair and what it does for a woman. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. I have
2: a friend when I was in college. When I, worked, I worked at Village Inn when I was in college, 84th and I 25. And there was this girl that I knew that had oh, come yeah. out of it. She was a stripper before she worked at Village Inn. Why <laughs> <laughs> But she became a Christian. She was saved, and she and I became really good friends. Well, that was the first thing she did after she cut. After she became a Christian, she cut her hair short because it was super long and all flowy, you know. And it was the first and thing to she it, did. To her it represented mm-hmm. that old. That she could never really grow it out again. I mean, I can see where you know.
1: That For her, was her that was a stumbling block to have. I mean, that represented it was her a stumbling life. Stumbling block a, to her. To her. And to,
2: she needed the change because everyone knew. Who she, what she had been doing, she didn't hide it, and people knew. You know, they all knew. And so it was a symbol to everybody that she was different, and she was she was different. She was yeah. a
1: different person. Yeah. And it so was right. And so it wasn't a legalistic thing of cutting her hair for her. But like we've talked the past couple of weeks, it was a stumbling block for her, and it could have been a stumbling block for other people. And it was a conviction. She wouldn't go around saying everybody's got to cut their hair short. For her, it represented going back to that old life and it being a stumbling block to do that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, now, here's another thing that we need to talk about. Uh, Paul, why, why was short hair disgraceful in that culture? Paul says, you know, if, if you're not going to cover your hair, you might as well just go ahead and shave your head and cut it. And He's talking about short hair. He says that long hair is a woman's glory. It got kind of confusing. Well, if long hair is a woman's glory, and you're not supposed to go around with long hair, you have to have short hair. What's going on here? Why was short hair disgraceful in that culture? Well, here's here's a couple of other reasons. Historians will tell us that women guilty of adultery had their hair shaved and were marked for prostitution. Both things happened. The Corinthian women would walk around with long hair and it was no big deal. The Jewish women would look at the woman with long hair and think she's a prostitute. The Gentile person would say, "If you're a prostitute, your hair shaved." So there's a lot of confusion walking around. Who's who? Is this woman like a prostitute? Is she an adulteress? Is she just like, like long hair? Is she Jewish? What's going on in this town? How do we know who people are? Also, another issue was in that culture, it made a woman look like and act like a man taking away her femininity. If a woman had really short hair back in that culture, it was a sign that she was trying to be masculine, and that was not appropriate gender confusion. So let's just stop and talk about gender confusion in our culture today. Why is there so much gender confusion? There's some major gender confusion. And should we even use the word gender? (coughs) Our culture has used the word gender, (coughs) but actually it's sex. You're male or female, based upon what the Bible says. Gender is something you can choose to put down on a sheet of paper of how you define yourself. Different than what God has made you. So should we even use the word gender? I'm just throwing it out there. Why is there so much gender? Confusion. I use the word. We don't know. A
3: lot we of broken th- homes. Yeah. Boys don't know how to be men. Women don't know how to be women. Yeah.
1: It all stems back to, um, I think, broken homes. I think there's a, cu- a couple of things going on. Let's play this, let's play this scenario in our, in our heads for just a moment. Let's say um, 50 years ago you had a little boy that was a little effeminate, but he was in an intact home, and his dad taught him how to be a boy. And he played, you know, he didn't play with dolls or anything, but maybe he was more artistic he still had a cultural upbringing with his dad being a positive role model, and the culture was still leading him towards embracing being with a woman, even though he may have had an artistic side to him. And there's nothing wrong with a child having an artistic side, being a little bit you know, artsy or whatever. That's how God's made that person. But there were societal constructs, and there were parental constructs to keep that in boundaries. Today, a little boy who's six years old starts getting artsy and wanting to play with dolls, His parents say, we need to do a sex change because we want this boy to be who he thinks he is. So his parents are no longer providing that boundary. And then culture and these TV shows are saying, just explore who you want to be. And so now you've got parents and cultures taking away the boundaries that were there in society maybe even 10, 20 years ago. And so you've got people growing up that are so confused. I mean... You hear, every time, you hear stories all over the country of little kids who are getting sex changes because their parents, the kid says, I think I'm a girl when he's really a boy. The parent says, okay, you want to be a girl? Let's raise you as a girl. And they do whatever they can. In California, they've got gender-neutral bathrooms. They actually have it here in Colorado too. And so there's, there's a lot of confusion in our culture. How do we as a church address it without being judgmental?
2: had both things happen even in the old days and now. you assigned a gender de- definition to art or to music or to football. Mm-hmm. Do you understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So 50 years ago, football would be what boys did and definitely not art.
1: Mm-hmm. But they're
2: doing the same thing now, which why? Why aren't there? There's plenty of men artists that were not homosexual or what have you. But they're doing the same thing now. So the boy has a le- leaning towards dolls or art we're going to change your sex so they're still defining the role as a, <coughs> that interest as a gender yeah, interest. yeah, yeah. That interest yeah. and good. so yeah. they're not they're still not allowing that thing that interest to be neutral yeah and then let the child grow up saying yeah it's okay if you're interested in art that That's doesn't right. mean you're a girl right why you know you're a man who likes right. art and you can thrive in that and mm-hmm. you can right. still be masculine right You know, it's just interesting to me, and I think it all comes down to sex, period. Because we have oversexed everything. Everything's Mm -hmm. about sex. We were talking about this the other day when, I forgot what we were watching, Arrow, that show. Every show we have seen on TV recently has had a lesbian couple in it. And it doesn't need to be, and then I said, you watch, because it was this cute girl, you know, and this other cute girl. (laughs) That had a moment, and it was like, where did that come from? And I said, you watch. By the end of the show, she's going to be kissing that man. She has no clue how to have a friendship, how to have a relationship. Everything's about sex. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's how the whole culture is. And so even that little boy who now doesn't like sports or doesn't care about it, it becomes a sex issue. It's mm-hmm. not even just, mm-hmm. this is what it's you're good at you and it. what you aren't good at. Yeah. You know? So I think that's where the whole confusion's coming from, is we don't know how people are supposed to live anymore. It's all about sex and that's it. Mm-hmm. And sex sells and that's why. It might come
1: all- Preach it, preach it, preach it, preach it, lady, preach it. I'll defer to my wife; she can preach it. Now she's been talking. She's been talking about this for three weeks. I'm glad she's finally let you guys in on it because we've had some great conversations. And sometimes my wife just she's she's very wise and profound, and she just lets it rip. So, so I'm so preach it. No, I want you to preach it. No, I want you to preach it because that was good. Exactly right. We put everything into a sexual
0: content when all it is is just. This old boy that wants to take clay and form a statue, you know, my husband Larry who died, he was not an athlete, he was a cowboy and he was a man, but his leanings were very artistic. He could write poetry, he could play music, I mean, you know, thank God it was encouraged instead of,
1: oh my gosh, what's wrong with him? Yeah, yeah. Well, I just think as a church we we are going to be faced with gender confusion, same-sex attraction, and all these things, if we don't think it's coming, I mean, I can guarantee you in our congregation right now, not I don't know names, but just by statistics, there are people out there every Sunday that are struggling with these issues, if you just look at the statistics. I don't know who they are, but I just say statistics would tell you in a church our size, there's got to be at least a few people that are, that are dealing with that, or a family member, or a person in our church who has a family member or a friend dealing with it. But not where the gospel
2: heals? Because yes. Because once you have... I mean, for me, just not that I had gender confusion, but just confusion from life, period. Mm-hmm. And then you come to know the Lord, and you figure out, now you're centered in Him, and then mm-hmm. He can just ground you, and then you can figure it out. And I think that no matter what, what the issue a person comes in, yeah, the cross is going to heal them.
1: Yes. I, I, there, there's this lady named Butterfield. I can't remember her first name, but she... Rosary. Yeah, Rosaria Butterfield. She was a former lesbian that was really active in the gay rights movement on college campuses. She became a Christian, renounced her homosexuality, repented, got married, and now she goes to college campuses and tells her story about the gospel. She went to a Christian college last week, and a group of 100 Christians at the Christian college protested her being there because she was saying that homosexuality was wrong and that you need to repent of it. And so um, she's getting a lot of flack for telling the story of how the gospel has changed her into a new person so uh, yes it was Wheaton College and they got in trouble the students got in trouble they shouldn't have but because those students have to sign a statement saying that they will not engage in homosexual behavior and so these were like some rebel students that basically got got upset. I asked my
3: uh, cowboy of brown group Monday night uh, how many of them had any idea what the bible said about homosexuality you know what, half of them raised well, their you hands? read those
0: scriptures, and he, what you asked him was, "How many of you heard? This is the first time you've heard."
3: Romans
0: mm-hmm. one, and half of them raised their hands. They had never never heard, heard the scripture. Mm-hmm. Never heard. Not in
1: church. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and, and that does mean. I mean, we need to do some more education. We've got. It's just a challenge. We're going to have to love. We're going to have to confront. We're going to have to really be clear on the gospel. And um, the issue is not. The issue is not behavior. The issue is the heart. Nobody's, nobody's going to become a Christian. By, I can't go up to a person and say, hey, stop being a homosexual. Mm-hmm. Stop being a drunk. Mm-hmm. Stop being an adulterer. Stop being, a stop being a gossip. Stop being angry. That's not the gospel. That's dealing with their behavior. Mm-hmm. What I need to tell them is, you know what? The gospel meets you at the deepest need of your heart, and when Christ comes into your life, He changes you from the inside out, and then that stuff will change. But what you need is you need a new heart, and you need to repent from being a sinner first. And then once you repent from being a sinner and Christ saves you, then the behavior will take care of itself as the Holy Spirit comes and starts to change you. All right, let's, let's talk about public worship here. Paul addresses the issue in public worship in three ways. Women should wear a veil over their heads to show their submission to their husbands as married women. He's pretty clear in that passage of Scripture. They, they wear a veil, a covering to show that they're married like a wedding ring, and they're submissive to their husband. Women should wear a veil over their heads to not be a stumbling block to Jewish people who equated it with adultery and prostitution. So if you've got Jewish ladies in your church and you're not wearing a head covering, it would be a stumbling block to them. they think you're a prostitute, okay? And number three, women should wear a veil over their heads to not be a stumbling block to non-Christian Gentile visitors or onlookers in the worship service who would equate women worshiping with men as temple prostitutes. So you can see how it gets confusing, So I think Paul just says, okay, let's put the kibosh on this whole thing and just wear a a head covering so that nobody's confused, that there's no room for confusion. I think that's the bottom line here. And we look at this and we think, okay, this is really weird. So the issue is not the head covering. The issue is what message is it sending to non-Christians, to weaker Christians? How does it portray the issue of marriage? How does it portray the issue of of submission? Um, And here's the other issue for men. Men were supposed to not pray with their heads covered. Women had to have their hair cover, covered. Men had to have their heads uncovered. Why? In Corinth, the pagan male worshippers would cover their heads with their togas while offering sacrifices or praying in the cultic temples. So everything's related to temp, Everything's In Corinth, everything's related to, t- to temple cultic paganism. So a male would go in and he would, you know, he'd sacrifice to Zeus and he'd pull the toga over his head and pray and sacrifice with his head covered. So in Christian churches, men don't cover their head because people are going to think, well, he's sacrificing to a pagan god. Women cover their head so they don't think that she's a temple prostitute. Are you confused now? No, I think it makes it clear. Okay. Why they were doing that? Okay. Much better. So here's the issue. Yeah, here's the issue. It's all. I mean, you really have to understand the cultural context of Corinth. In a pluralistic pagan world of endless gods and goddesses and temple worship all over the place, the Corinthian Christians had to make sure that when they came together for worship, they were distinctly different so that the gospel would not get compromised or confused. I think that's the bottom line there. They didn't want to do anything to confuse the gospel. Okay? So, they didn't want to have to put stumbling blocks for people coming out of pagan idolatry they wouldn't want to put stumbling blocks for Jewish people that became Christians. They wouldn't want to put stumbling blocks for weaker Christians or non-Christians. So here's the greater, greater principle for us. So I think here's the principle for us, not head coverings. Here's the principle for us. In public worship, we should not do anything that distracts from the glory of God and the offense of the gospel. Now, that's easier said than done.
3: What about
1: camps and church? Camps? Camps and church. Caps and church. I grew up where when you walked into church, you took your hat off. Um, we had a rule at my old church where you took your hat off when you came into church. It was a cultural thing, out of respect for the older generation.
3: And I've had some of those cowboy kids come into home with either a cap or a cowboy hat, and they didn't take they it didn't off. They're gonna wear it all the time. Yeah, out
1: my house. Yeah, you gotta take it off. Yeah, and that's a cult, and that's a, and that's a thing of, of respect. Yeah. So what's, what was sad about this? And we went to Yuma. We give you this back in Yuma, and the school, They let the kids wear their caps in school. Hmm.
0: I thought that was the most craziest thing. A few years after that, they
1: stopped it. i, I got to tell you guys a funny story. Don't to laugh at this. I was a youth pastor at my church, and it was a very solid rule. We weren't a legalistic church. We were a very, very gospel-centered church, but you did not wear your hat, especially the youth. So Wednesday night, we had a Wednesday night meal like we used to have, and then we would have you a know, youth group and choir and adult and all this kind of stuff, kind of like what we have here. Well, these two teenage boys would come in. And they would wear their hats. And some of the senior adults, you know, or like Larry, or the, some of the guys, older guys would say, "Would say, real kindly, men, would you please remove your hats? And they would give the guys attitude. And they would not want to submit to the authority. So they went and complained to their mom. And their mom was like, wow, that's is a stupid rule. Why, I mean, what, what are they going to do if I wear a hat in, in church? So his mom that next Wednesday night, their mom, you remember this, Don? I'm not going to mention her name because it's going to be. Their mom... <laughs> puts a hat on, and walks into church strutting, and we're all sitting there at Wednesday night meal, and she just walks around the room <laughs> like this, just daring people to say something to her because she's an adult. And I think I actually went over to her turn and said, what are you doing? And, like, and so, she, and so this, is the, this is the rule. Look down at verse um, 16. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. In other words, she, yeah, she should just underline that. Um, so here's the question. Here's the question in Corinth, and here's the question today. Within reason, are you free to wear whatever you want to wear to church? Within reason? Okay. But it, would, it, would it be helpful or, or edifying? Remember what Paul said earlier? Look, look back up in chapter um, 10, verse 23, just one chapter up because this is all part of his main argument. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. In other words, in secondary matters that aren't necessarily black and white, it may not be helpful and it may not be edifying. So here's the question that we need to ask tonight. When we come to worship, what should be the primary things people are drawn to? I would say God's glory and the offense of the gospel when they come to worship. We don't want to wear anything, or we don't want to do anything that would take away from the glory of the gospel and the offense of the gospel. Now I purposely use that word, the offense of the gospel. Is the gospel offensive? Should we be offensive? What should be the only thing that offends people? The gospel. What should be the only thing people see when they come to worship? The glory of God. So, are there things this is an interesting question. I don't know where, where we're going to go tonight with this. Are there things we could do or not do in public worship that can distract people from the glory of God and the offense of the gospel? I.e., for Corinth, it was wearing veils on their heads. What would it be for us? What would be some things that would be offensive in our culture that would draw people away from the gospel? For the glory.
0: That, <clears throat> for me, anyway, if someone got up and spoke out, in tongues were allowed. <laughs> in fact, I talked to someone one day that... Uh, Visited somebody else and said, "Can I pray for you?" And that person said, "Yes." They prayed in tongues. Then, after the prayer was over, this person asked that person, "Would you like me to teach you how to pray in tongues?" And person responded, "No, not at this time."
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, there's different. Yeah, there's and we're going to get to that in a few weeks because that's that's addressed here in the next. uh, And I I guess uh, there's different viewpoints on the whole issue of tongues, and it's 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 a spiritual gift listed there, and so. I think we need to be. I think we need to walk treadily walk lightly on that issue. But for you, I guess, Larry, you'd say that would be, that would be a distraction, or that would be something that would be. What was my question? What could we do or not do? That, oh, that distract. What? What could, I can tell you what would distract me. And this has happened before, when some scantily clad woman in summertime comes and sits on the front row and has a low cut dress. What I'm trying to preach. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm just telling you that's happened, especially in the old building. And you almost have to have the clothing police to say, can we clothe this woman? Or can we remove her from the front row? Or they draw attention to themselves by raising... I mean, I, I don't know how you... I mean, risk one eye. Risk one yeah. Or just keep looking at your Bible. Yeah, keep looking at your Bible. I'm not making eye contact, making eye contact with that girl. So, yeah, okay. okay. To
3: me, the cap or hat or man is definitely offensive. <clears throat> My dad said that years ago when the flag went by, if somebody didn't take their hat off, you probably were confronted by somebody who oh, yeah. said take your hat off. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've done that at Cheyenne, and uh, it was well received.
1: Yeah, that's good. I think. <laughs> well, I will tell you another story. This is another story. The things you have to deal with as a youth pastor. We had a community-wide youth um, rally, and it was in another church. Um, and it was at a church that was a little didn't have as many rules as maybe our church and other churches had. And so all different churches from Colorado, all Southern Baptist churches from Colorado Springs were coming together for this youth rally. We called it um, Cruisin'. It was an all-nighter. You come together and you, you go all night to bowling and movies and all this kind of stuff. And the band was playing at this church, and one of the guys on the band had a hat on. And some of the students on the front were wearing hats. And since I, it wasn't at my church, it was at my friend's church, and it was the rule in our church not to wear hats. So our kids knew but this church, it wasn't a rule not to wear hats. But it was very offensive to another church. There was another church in town that was like more, more extreme than we were. And so their past youth pastor came up to me and said, he pulled me aside while, while this music's going. He goes, if they don't remove their hats, we are leaving. This is an offense to us. Could you tell them to remove their hats, please? So during the second song, I went up to the other youth pastor and said, hey, there's an issue. This youth pastor is very offended. His church is offended. They may leave. Can you ask your guys to remove their hats? And this guy said, I'm not going to do that. This is my church, and they can just deal with it. We're going to wear our hats. And I thought, I'm stuck in the middle of this. And eventually I just said, you know, for the sake of unity and the sake of not offending your brother, what's the the deal with wearing a hat? Can your guys not wear a hat to not be an offense? And we don't want to have bad blood between... And so I couldn't... I respected this man's rule because it was the rule in our church, but I didn't understand this youth pastor's um, kind of defiance. But it was something where... When we came together, there was an offense. There was a felt offense that was going on there that prevented one group from worshiping. And I don't want to prevent a group from worshiping by something like a hat. So if a hat's going to offend, you know, just ask somebody to remove it. Um, I
0: know for me, you know, coming from, you know, southern, southern Mm Baptists, where there's a lot more congregational participation, like in Amen and that kind of stuff. And I, it's been real hard for me to learn to be quiet not
1: say, <laughs> because nobody else does it. And I'm like, well, well, that's a northeastern – that's that's <laughs> but I don't think you should be quiet. I don't think, think – because
0: I don't, be don't want to be a distraction.
1: No, it's not but, a distraction.
0: Do you remember the guy that we had here? Who, what was his name, the guy that, that had the paralysis that preached the other night? You
1: know, oh, the, um, David for, Miller, for, David or, David Miller, yeah. He
0: was could, He was wanting people yeah. cause, because he's, he's from, from the south.
1: south. You guys are northeastern Colorado, stiff upper lift, (laughs) German-Russian immigrants that don't have any. You're robots. You have no emotion. No, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. But I I know exactly what you mean. You know, I think there's a fine line. I think if it gets too excessive. Like, for example, there's a different culture in black churches than there are. When you go to a black church, it's expected that you talk back to the preacher. I mean, there's that give and take. In white churches, we don't have that. It's just a cultural thing. And it may be offensive if you go to a white church, if you go to a black church and don't amen and hoop and holler. it may be offensive. You're not yeah you're not part of the. But you know um, I have a friend in town who's another pastor of another church that I pray with, and he was telling us in our prayer time last week that they've had a tambourine lady show up at church. We've had a tambourine lady show up, where this person showed up and brought their own tambourine and just start playing the tambourine and. Um, they had a good way to handle it. They, um, his wife, went over to her and said, "Hey, we're really happy that you brought a tambourine to worship the Lord." But at our church, we really want all the instruments to be up on the stage so that it can be orderly and that the praise team can lead in worship. So she got it really well. And so, and no, no, and so yeah, so she yeah. And I was thinking, is that what happened next? She went up on stage and. <laughs> okay, fine. Thanks for
3: asking.
1: But you know that that something, can
3: yeah. something else. Uh, cell phones. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And round pen. Oh yeah. And uh, you know, I have to carry a hammer. You know, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna right, think you're making doves. Well,
0: now it
3: a while to get used to, to the begin, To begin, things. with, I make him put them on the counter. Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, there's some yeah. culture.
0: They can get them back if they do have their Bible.
1: On their Bible, yeah. That's but it, that, that
3: but really you,
0: you me. know, I mean, when they're eating and texting, they are not.
1: Well, really and I always say, Aiden, did you bring Aiden? Did you bring your Bible? He's like, Yeah. I'm like, Where is it? It's on my phone, Dad. And they're just like, Okay. I'm used yeah. to the old days when my parents. Did you bring your Bible? Yeah. There it is, and leather bound. Yeah, you yeah. gonna say something, Dave? Bring it. No,
3: I, I just, I just think the same thing as Frank too, because I,
1: you know, I'm, I'm training people all the time, you know, just different groups of people. But the younger, of course, the older I get younger than the, <laughs> people get, yeah, <laughs> the new there people are, are. And, and more and more, I mean, five years ago when I was doing this, there was no question, you came into the room, you, nobody, they shut off phones, they just, that's what people did, mm-hmm. you know, it, it was how you were, you know, how you what you believed, and then now, yeah. honestly, these guys are like... They're like they're a third appendage that they, yeah. they can't function There's there's right. a there's a, a, I'll say it, please, I don't want those. I don't want you guys looking at them. You got to have break time. You can do that, just you know, right up front. And sure enough, after a while, you're pulling out, and every time the guy's looking over here, and he's going, checking his Facebook. Yeah. Well, Al Mohler just put a blog on. I think it was either today or yesterday. And he was talking about how um, technology is changing the way the world is, and his argument is that it's going to be hard to fight. So, we're going to have to really figure out as churches how to adapt to this new technological age because there's no going back. The I um,
2: there's probably some, like, I don't get it either because I'm not, I wasn't born with a cell phone in my head either. A silver spoon? <laughs> there were a silver cell phone. Kinds of rules, you know, like just socially what you do and what you don't do. And I think that there's probably rules with the technology too that the young people have. Yeah. So, no, I, you I, know I what I'm saying? Thing. Like, I don't know what is, you know, I, I what do it, they going, think is good I'm manners? I'm going, what is the matter with yeah. you? Yeah. <laughs>
3: you're going to have to step back and go, wait a minute. If you're in charge, you're just telling me to put them away. Well, <laughs>
2: and then Sean the other day even was told that, well, I was told caller ID, this is just, like, caller ID and texting and, and phone calls and leaving messages and things like this. Well, you have caller ID, and if you don't leave a message...
1: Like yeah, this person, call, well, this, per- this, this person called Well, this person this person called me. This person called me and didn't leave you a message. And so I called back and I said, "Did you need something from me?" And he goes, like, yeah, I called you." I said, "Well, you didn't leave a message. Well, you have caller ID, you knew I called you." So he's, expe- he's he expected me to call him back because it was caller ID. Well, I was like, "Okay, I guess that's the way you operate." And so I don't like leaving messages. Yeah. So I think the bottom line is this, guys, when each church and it's when it's areas that aren't like Paul's still talking about not black and whites here, okay? When there are areas of cultural issues like head coverings or hats or cell phones, I think each church has to wisely determine what the culture of its church is going to be. is going to be the best fit for that church to not be an offense and to make sure that the gospel central and the glory of God is central. Um, and I think it may be a little bit different for each church. Um, there's a church in Denver called Scum of the Earth Church. That's their name. Now, you'd expect if you go to Scum of the Year the Church, they reach out to skateboarders and to gang members, and their pastor probably preaches in tattered jeans, and, you know, that's their culture. If I were to show up in tattered jeans and preach here, I'd probably offend some of our senior you know, people because you would think that's not respectful. Um, some churches still expect their pastors to wear a suit and tie. Um, and so I think, I think each church has to determine what their culture is and understand that we want the one thing that we want people leaving Sunday morning seeing is the glory of God and the gospel. And we want to take away all distractions to, to make sure that that's what people leave. I don't want people leave thinking, oh man, that, I, I was drawn to that or I was drawn to that and I wasn't drawn to Jesus. And, so, and it takes a group effort for everybody to kind of to submit to one another in that area. Okay, guys, we got halfway through this, which is good because um, the next section is on the Lord's Supper, which is a totally different subject. We'll have to look at this next week, but it's still talking about public worship. So are there any other questions tonight? Um, we're almost done um, on this whole issue of, of, of what, the, um, what the, the issue was. I think that kind of doing the study on this helped me understand the issues here. Hopefully this was helpful on head coverings, that you never even suffered, studied that. So it's something that we... All righty. Well, next week... They had, that we don't have as much, is they had so many culture people within that area. Oh, yeah. That, you know, I mean, like you say, you can't win no matter what... Yeah. Well, and here that's a good point, Larry, because we live in a pretty... And I'll use the word monocultural. That just means one culture. For the most part, Sterling is pretty monocultural... There's a few subcultures, but like if we were in Denver or we were in Houston or we were in L.A., we may have multicultural church expressions where we'd really be dealing with this more. Um, I think for the most part, I want to say we're totally monocultural, but um, I think our church has a good representation of multi-ethnic, but I don't think we here in northeastern Colorado struggle with it maybe as much as a cosmopolitan city does with people moving in and out from all different nations and cultures. Um, the way big cities deal with that. So. All right, well, let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace, and he- thank you for helping, helping me, Holy Spirit, to understand this so I can communicate truth. I, I really appreciate, Holy Spirit, how you've, you've illuminated this to me, and I pray that we've understood it tonight. Um, I pray that we would do nothing that would bring dishonor to you, Jesus, and that we would always want to point people to you and the glory of you. And Lord, uh, even as we were thinking earlier about looking at those videos, we don't want to be manipulative in anything we do. We want to be wise, we want to be careful, but we also want to be obedient. And so Lord, help us to to find that balance. Help us to glorify you in all that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.